We're continuing this little series on relationships, and we've been talking about just broadly how to do relationships well. And it occurred to me earlier this week just how important our broader web of relationships are in order to do any particular relationships well. And what I mean by this is you've probably observed that people who just do relationships well don't have as much of an issue in terms of doing a a marriage well or a relationship with a child well. Generally, if you're relating to a husband well or a child well, you're relating to your coworkers well and other friends well. What I mean is if you want your marriage to improve or your relationship with your children to improve or relationship with your neighbors or your family to improve, generally you, you want to be concerned about the broader network in terms of how are you doing relationships with people, period. But you also need to pay attention to, and I need to pay attention to, an even broader range of relationships. That is to say, if I'm concerned about one relationship in particular, I need to pay attention to the broader network, web of human relationships. But I also need to pay attention to just the broader web of relationships in life, period. And that would include my relationship with God and my relationship toward the world. And when we don't pay attention to that broader network of relationships, including the relationship to God and our relationship with the world as a whole, it doesn't matter how much instruction we have on one particular relationship, we're not going to get it right. Here's what I mean. Maybe we should think of relationships along the lines of coaching baseball. Now, I'm I'm not a baseball coach, and I'm not good at throwing a baseball. If you've ever seen me throw a softball, you know Ashley can testify. He's terrible. It's true. I don't have a good arm. My son has a good arm, but uh, I don't. But I do know a few things, and I was reading something from Don Edlin, who's a professional coach to Little League players. I mean, he gets paid to coach kids on how to pitch. And he says, as in batting, so too in pitching, what the the biggest mistake is commonly is people don't pay attention to the foundation. They're not paying attention to footwork. He says it's very common to go to a Little League baseball game and you see a kid on the mound and his balance is just terrible through the entire windup. And he's not surprised by the fact that they're not able to throw pitches well. And he's surprised that other baseball coaches are surprised when these kids whose windup is out of whack aren't throwing strikes appropriately. He says you've you got to pay attention to the foundation. You've got to pay attention to footwork. You've got to pay attention to stance. Because when you're pitching a baseball, it's not just this. And I don't know how much of the pitch is this. Less than half, less than a quarter, I don't know. But I do know that when you pitch, your whole body is involved. Your feet are involved, and your legs are involved, and your hips are involved, and your core is involved, and your shoulders are involved, and maybe the non-pitching arm is involved, and certainly you've got to pay attention to your head and your eyes and all how the whole thing works together. And to our demise, we just pay attention to this one part. And I have this tendency to think that when we're talking about relationships, we want to know, hey, what, what are the five rules on a happy marriage? Or what are the seven habits of highly effective child rearers? Uh, and that's another message altogether. But I love the child rearing. Maybe we should do a whole series on that, but I digress. But we have a tendency to just pay attention to what's going on up here. And, and he's saying that's a mistake. If you're just paying attention to the grip difference between a fastball and a curveball, but you're not paying attention to proper stance, nothing's going to fall into place. So can you imagine, and you see this with kids sometimes who are learning how to pitch, they, you know, they do this, and, and, and it's not working. Why? Because this isn't happening. 
Imagine somebody trying to pitch strikes, and this is their opening stance. You say, well, that's ridiculous. Well, yeah, it is ridiculous because it's not going to work. You could learn all the finer points on how to throw a curveball or a slider or a fastball, but if this is off, nothing else is going to work. But we have a tendency to pay attention to that. As quarterbacks, if a quarterback throws a touchdown, they go, good arm. And, and only, you know, really insightful coaches will go, well, look at his footwork. That was amazing. Today, what we're doing is we're talking about footwork. We're talking about foot placement. We're talking about standing appropriately in relation to God and in relation to the world. And so some of what I'm talking about today may sound to you like we're not even talking about relationships at all. But I'm telling you, this is the 90% below the surface of the iceberg. If we don't get our relationship toward God and our relationship toward the world right, if our stance is inappropriate or our hips are not pointed in the right direction, if what's going on down here is not right, all of these self-help books in the world that are just dealing with this are not going to help you. In fact, if you've ever kind of wondered, hey, why is it that this person, this person relates so weird or that marriage is so off or this relationship is dysfunctional or you just see weird things going on at work or in other people's lives, why? How does that happen? Here's how. Their footwork is off. Their stance is all wrong. That's why they've, they've gotten into such a strange groove in doing lives with people. Now with that, let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. We're going back to a major epistle in the Bible concerning love. We're going back to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and then chapter 3, verse 1. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. But then chapter 3, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. May God bless you, read his word. You may be seated. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, Ernest, it already got weird because, I, you know, we've been talking about how love is the key to doing relationships well, and now we get to this point and we're told, don't love the world. Don't love the things in the world. What is going on here? I don't understand. And why is this so important to me doing relationships with people? It is confusing. But first, let's just kind of understand what it means to not love the world the way John is communicating here. And it is confusing because John, and I think it's the same author in my opinion, says something kind of contradictory elsewhere. You go over to the gospel according to John, and John preserves these words for us that a lot of us have memorized. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we go, okay, God is love, and God is good, and he loves the world, and now he's telling me I can't love the world. What's going on? Well, the solution to this apparent tension is obvious, and, and that is, in the Bible, the word world is used in at least two different senses. On the one hand, commonly, the word world simply communicates what God has made, the physical universe, the material universe, and all the people that inhabit the word world. That's, that's one meaning of the word world. There's another meaning, though, and that has to do with an attitude or disposition toward the world, a mentality that the material, all that is, is the ultimate. Or I think I want to read it the way I put it up there. Worldliness is a state of mind in which the material world is all there is, 
And we're going to see in just a moment how disastrous that thinking is. Okay, so just to be clear, when we're just talking about the material universe, the world that God has made, that God called good, we should love that. We should love the needs of people and pay attention to the concerns of individuals. And we ought to love everybody, the lost as well as the found. And we ought to be loving this, this world that God has created in terms of nature. And we should be very concerned to do our work as best we can because we know in this world that God has made and has called good that whatever we do, wherever we are, in our jobs or in our homes, if we're doing it to the glory of God, we can be bringing him just as much glory there as we are bringing him here in this moment or through anything else we do through the church and our activities. So in one sense, when you're just thinking about the material world and the people who inhabit it, we are to love that, but that's not what John is talking about here. Because when he talks about loving the world, he doesn't say, oh, the streams and rivers and mountains and trees and babies and laughter. He says the lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. We know what he's talking about. He's talking about this mentality that says the world is all there is. That matter is all that matters. And it's that disposition or mindset that is so incredibly destructive. It's an overlove for what is here. Let me put it to you like this. Let me just ask you. And this isn't a trick question. Is pleasure good? Can you actually love pleasure? It's not a trick question. I know, I know we're still kind of Baptist, so you're going to have a hard time answering this, okay? But do, do, can, you, can you love pleasure? Yes. Thank you. you, know, you I can tell who used to not be Baptist. Uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> Look, uh, God created food as potentially pleasurable and sex and sunsets and a whole lot of other things it's it's good it's fine it's it's okay to even love pleasure but when you live for pleasure that's called hedonism that's pleasurism pleasure's good living for pleasure making it the ultimate good that's the problem okay are you with me same thing with regards to world is the world that god made good In Genesis chapter 1, he says it is good seven times. It's good. We can love the world. It's just that when you start living for the world, when you take what is and you make it the ultimate, when you take this world and all that is in it and in some way or another idolize it, put it in the place of God, make it the ultimate good, not just a good, that's bad. There's a difference between the world and worldism or worldliness. And it's the worldliness that's the problem. So at the heart of worldliness, here's what flows out of worldliness. Here's what makes it so bad. If you think that this is all there is, here's what flows out of it. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life all flow from relating to the world God made as if this is all there is. And that's what makes this so so bad. So now here's, here's the question. Okay, so why is... You know, what is so, I don't know, negative about the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life? What, what does that mean? If I'm a worldly person and that's what's flowing out of me, what is that? Well, the best way to understand this is just by cutting to that centrally significant word, lust. The word lust translates a Greek word, epithumia. Epithumia. Epi is the prefix that commonly communicates intensity. So if you're talking about an epicenter of an earthquake, it's the heart of the heart. It's the center of the center. It's like right there in the middle of the earthquake. That's what we're talking about. Epi just communicates intensity. 
So when we're talking about epithemia, we're just getting to an over-desire, a disproportionate desire, an intensity of desire that is inappropriate. And it gets back to not just loving, but over-loving. So is there anything wrong with eating? Well, no. We have to eat to survive. Can you even love to eat? Well, sure. In fact, I would say if you don't love chocolate or cheesecake you know, or ice cream or something, there's something wrong with you. I mean, it's either your taste buds are broken, and I'm sorry, or you don't have a soul. But it, if you don't, there are certain things that you should love. And if you don't have a soul, we don't have a vampire service, okay? But it, the point is, it's okay to love to eat even. It, that's fine. God made it that way. But to live to eat, that's different, okay? Sex is good, but to live for sex, that's worldliness. Money is good. You, you need money. But to live for money, that's worldliness. To look good is fantastic, but to live for looking good, that's worldliness, okay? So worldliness is, in, in another sense, is just an over-love for what God has made or a disproportionate love for what God has made as if this is all that there is, as if all you're dealing with and all I'm dealing with is just time, space, and so in the time that I've been given, I better get as much stuff or as much out of the stuff as I possibly can because this is all there is. It's, it's living as if, uh, well, in the words of uh, Ecclesiastes, the teacher, says it, it, he talks about life under the sun. It's living as if all there is is life under the sun, as if we're living in a closed system. This is it. There's no eternity. There's no God. There's no soul. This is it. All that matters is matter. And that is devastating to relationships, and we're going to see why in, in just a second. But I want you to understand what I'm talking about here in terms of worldliness. So let me just tease out one example. Let, let, let's just play out one example of worldliness so you understand this. Uh, the, the Bible teaches that when it comes to our relationship with money, for example, if a person is essentially stingy uh, or, or they spend all their money on themselves, they're worldly. Now, you may self-identify as a Christian, but if you look at people who tithe or give, you know, 10, 15, 20 percent, some people do, and you look at them as kind of crazy, well, then the problem is you're worldly. You're living at, as if and thinking as if this is all there is. This is all that matters. Matter is all that matters. So from the standpoint of this is all there is, giving anything away is just craziness. It doesn't make sense. But there are people who have received the love of the Father into their lives, and uh, it is an overwhelming, crazy, never-ending love. I don't even know the words of that song, but that was awesome, man. I love, I've never heard that song before. That was so good. I was crying over there. People who have received the love of the Father into their hearts, they, they recognize this world is real, and, and it, it counts, but they also see that there's this great big other world, and they make decisions in this world in light of the other world, and as a result... It, there's radical generosity because we're not living as if this is all there is. So when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is talking about money, he's not just talking about money. He's talking about worldliness. He's talking about perspective or attitude or disposition, whether it's right or wrong, whether you're off or not, whether you're getting reality or not. So Jesus says, uh, look, don't store up for yourselves treasures in, in, on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up instead for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves... Are, are, do we have the... the is this, the computer not working? There we go. 
where don't store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not just I'm off. <laughs> Jesus said a lot of things. Here's what do, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy them, where thieves don't break in and steal. And the reason Jesus is saying this is, is not that treasure doesn't count. He's not saying that money isn't important. He's not saying who cares about clothes or who cares about food. Actually, God is very concerned. Your father is concerned about it. He's so concerned about stuff in this world that he makes it a point to even clothe the grass of the field. He even gives food to those sparrows that are here today and gone tomorrow. There's the Father's concerned. This stuff is real. It is important. But the point of Jesus is not, is the treasure real or not? Does it count or not? His point is, where are you storing it? Are you storing your stuff up there or down here? Where is your ultimate closet in this world or the next? I mean, where, where are your barns where you're holding your grain? Here or there? Where you store your stuff, where, where you're looking at things from matters. And Jesus lets us know if you're just living as if this is all that matters, if this world is all there is, you just need to know your, your gold is rust, your clothes are moth-eaten, your food is full of worms and maggots. And as Jesus goes, so too all the other authors in the New Testament, including John here in 1 John. If, if you are stingy and you spend everything only on yourself and you look at Christians who give money as just kind of idiots, well, the problem is not that you need, you know, some training on technique. The problem is your stance is all wrong. You're worldly. John would put it like this. If you have a hard time with, with money and letting go of money for the poor, for those who need it, for the advance of the kingdom of God, the problem is you love the world in a way that people who've received the love of the Father don't. See, here's the ultimate problem with people who love the world in that particular sense. Lovers of the world relate to what is limited and passing away as if it's ultimate. And they relate to the ultimate as if it's limited and passing away. People in whom the love of the Father rests, they live as if what is limited and passing away is limited and passing away, and they live as if what is ultimate is ultimate. And this is why, by the way, that worldliness is so destructive to every relationship, humanly speaking. Let's, let's go back and let's read once again 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And I want you to notice, and we're going to read this slowly, I want you to notice the contrast between... People who have received the supreme love of God and those who love the world supremely. It's a radical difference. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, lust of the flesh meaning sensation, satiation, lust of the eyes, appearances, Image, lust of the flesh, maybe another translation could be, uh, or lust of the, or boastful pride of life, lust of the ego, putting oneself, oneself in a position where I have the control and I have the power and I get the applause. All of these things, they're not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away and also its desires, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. See, the huge difference, Right? Those who are worldly, who live as if this is all there is, live as if what is passing and limited 
is supreme, and to live as what is supreme is passing and limited. This is why this is so devastating to relationships. And you say, okay, Ernest, I, I understand what worldliness is. Thanks for the explanation. But how's that, how's that devastating to relationships? So what you're saying is to the degree that a person is worldly, relationships will be unhealthy. But to the degree that a, a person is godly or not living for the world, to that degree, relationships have the potential to be really healthy. I don't get the connection. Well, here's the, here's the connection. Um, w- would you agree that a healthy relationship involves relating to someone for who they are and not for who they're not? Let me, let me put it to you like this. Do you think it's better to relate to a child as a child than to relate to a child as an adult? Do you think it's better to relate to somebody you know as someone you know or to relate to someone you don't know as someone you know? It's better to relate to a stranger as a stranger, not as someone that you're a close friend to. Has this ever happened? Maybe you're in a restaurant or you go into the mall or something, and you see somebody at a distance, you hey! And then they get closer, and then you go, oh, I don't know you. And you don't know me. Has that ever happened to anybody here? It's never happened to me. Uh, now, now, of course it's happened. And, and you feel like a fool, right? And the reason you feel foolish is because you were relating to them for someone they were not as opposed to someone they were. And it got kind of weird. You, you don't want to relate uh, to your wife like you would relate to your daughter or relate to your wife the way you'd relate to a housekeeper. And some of you say, well, I, actually, I do want to relate that way. But, okay, then we need to counsel quickly. Uh, you don't want to relate to someone for who they are not. You want to relate to someone for who they are. Uh, you don't want to relate to a child care worker uh, as a child care worker who's trusted uh, unless you know for sure that they're not a predator. You don't want to relate to a predator the way you'd relate to a child care worker or a babysitter. That'd be terrible. That's why we do background checks. We want to know who we're dealing with. You don't want to relate to God the way you relate to a cabbage. I mean, we could go on here, but actually this next week, our, our staff is doing, we've done this DISC test. It's a personality analysis you got these four quadrants and where are you placed and all this stuff. And uh, I learned from John that he is right smack dab in the very center of, his, of the four quadrants. You know what that means? We have verifiable evidence that G- Jesus and John really tight. Um, I don't know where I am. I don't know where everybody else is. But we just basically are, are figuring out who we are so we know who we're relating to as a staff. That makes sense. So let me just ask you again. Would you agree that at least part of relating to someone well is relating to them for who they are, not for who they are not. Yes. Okay. That's the problem with worldliness because worldly people relate to other people not for who they are, but for who they're not. Worldly people relate to things and to people for who and what they're not because worldliness turns things, even good things, into ultimate things. We have a tendency to above all other things, to idolize people, to treat people as God. And no offense, but you're not God. You are not and can never be the ultimate source of meaning and significance to somebody else's life. But if this is all there is, people start looking at other people under the sun as the ultimate source of significance and meaning, and that's disastrous because you're relating to people not for who they are but for who they're not. I want to introduce you to a man named Jan Dal Aglio. He is a French philosopher, writes some books. 
He's an instructor at the School of Life in Paris, France, and he gave this. He's completely secular. I don't know if he's an atheist or agnostic, but he's not a Christian. Uh, And he gave this lecture three years ago entitled, Love, You're Doing It Wrong. And his analysis is really good. I don't like his conclusions or his solution, but his analysis is really helpful, and it will help you to understand why, if you live as if this is all there is, there is nothing beyond this, how messed up situations can become. Here's what he says. He's right. Love is a hard word to define, he says. I can love a book or I can love my wife, but a book and my wife, they have different value. I can value a book, but my book does not value me back. My wife does, or she can. And he says, my wife uh, calls me her star. So he said, only another consciousness can desire me as desirable. So he says, for our purposes, love is the desire of being desired. The desire to be desirable. That's a good working definition. But he says, here's the problem. The problem throughout history has been people asking the question, how do I become and remain desirable? Now, in the past, that was easily answered because there were traditional authorities. There were traditions that people would live up to. And so it was kind of clear. The problem is now answering that question is more complicated than it's ever been because we're in a place of history called modernity. And what that means is I'm free to value or devalue any object, any idea, any concept, anything. And I'm radically free as an individual, radically The problem is others are free to value or devalue me. This is the cause, he says, for the anxiety of modern human beings. We just don't know where we stand. This is at the heart, the core of of our problem. Am I desirable? How desirable? How many people love me? And in this world of radical individualism and free choice, and where we've, been, we've lost all moorings in tradition, he says, well, how do people deal with this? How do people answer the question? How do, how do I make myself desirable in this free market of individualism? Well, here's how, he says, by collecting images or symbols of desirability. And so if you're, if you're James Bond, you, or you want, if you're a man, you kind of want to go the way of James Bond, where it's the cars and lots of women hanging around and wads of cash and piles of poker chips and the really nice clothes and an expanding resume of studliness and all the rest, we're, we're acquiring all of this capital. And he says this whole act of acquiring symbols of desirability, he calls it the act of, of acquiring seduction capital. So we've capitalized relationships. It's all about trade. Now, stick with me here. How many of you all have played Monopoly? That, that, okay, most of us are familiar with this. In the game of Monopoly, you're dealing with a closed system. There's only so much cash. There's only so much property. There's only so much stuff on the board. And the way you win is by getting more. You get more, and then you trade for more, and then you trade for more because the winner is the one who gets everything, and the loser is the one who gets nothing. It's a closed system. There's only so much capital to go around. And, and Jan is really, uh, he's not very happy about this because he sees this is the end of relationships. And by the way, Europe is generally about 20 years ahead of where we are. So if you're kind of concerned, what's going to happen to marriage? What, what's going to happen with my children? What's going to happen to my grandchildren? Where, where are relationships going? It seems like people are in and out, in and out all the time. And, well, it, and Jan says it's just getting worse. All of this 
self-absorbed capitalization. He says, if we don't change things, if we don't turn the corner, if we don't stop this, it's going to be the death of lasting relationships in our world, period. So he says, how do we do this? How do we? He says, well, here's where it's going. He says, I can imagine two things happening. He says, one, I can see websites going to a point where they just kind of operate on a frequency flyer kind of strategy, you know, uh, loyalty points, where all of everything's reduced to seduction capital. People just judge me immediately by my age, my height weight ratio, clicks on my profile, salary degrees, and all the rest. So the other problem he sees is he sees actually the development of chemicals that will somehow weaken bonds of attachment. Because in this world of seduction capital, where we're always trading and trying to trade up and trade up so that we can get meaning out of other things in this world that's so limited, that it just doesn't make sense for one man and one woman to be stuck together forever. What a waste of seduction capital. I mean, one James Bond is worth ten women. And what if I do feel like I'm getting a good deal, but, and I enter into this marriage, but then my seduction capital increases and hers decreases, and that's not fair. He says everything's dissolving because we're living as if we're going to suck meaning out of this world and out of relationships, and there's only so much to go around. So what's the solution? He says here's how we're going to save lasting relationships. People have got to stop trying to get their value out of other people by admitting we're all worthless. Everybody's useless. And he actually says this to this audience in France. He says, I'm useless. You're useless. We're all useless. And he's not joking. It's not tongue-in-cheek. He's not laughing. And they all clap. It's very French. Uh, it really is. If you know anything about Jean-Paul Sartre or Albert Camus or Simone de, Bo- de Beauvoir, or, you, you go, it, it's just meaningless, meaningless. Everything's meaningless. Everything burns up in the end. You're a tiny piece of what burns up in the end. There's no God. There's no soul. This is all you got. He said, we just all need to admit we're all worthless. We're all, everything's meaningless. And he says, it's easy to demonstrate that you have no value because you're always looking for other people to get value from. And even the guy who pretends to be aloof and is designing his walk and his actions and his dress so as to get everybody's attention, even while pretending to be above everybody else. It's just empty people trying to fill empty people. Let's just all admit we're worthless. It's empty. Everything's meaningless. And then at least we'll be more tender toward one another. And that's his conclusion. Now, he's operating as if this world is all there is. You got two options. Disappointment, you're trying to suck meaning out of people that isn't there. You're trying to take what cannot be taken. And all that happens is people just feel beat up in the end. It's like running on a treadmill. You're running and running and running, and, but you're not really going anywhere. And then after you're exhausted, when the whole thing turns off, your feet are beaten up. And so too are the people around you like the treadmill beneath your feet. And just nobody wins. Stop, he says, stop trying to take what cannot be taken. There's no meaning in this world. We're all useless, he says. But the better option is just to admit, it all burns up in the end. You're just a tiny, worthless, meaningless piece of everything that burns up in the end. There's no God, there's no soul. So let's just huddle together in the wilderness of despair until we finally die like the animals we are and fertilize the soil. I mean, at the very least, we're going to hang on to each other. At least we'll be tender to each other if we just admit that it's all worthless. And that's his conclusion. Now, let us pray. That's a bummer. That's terrible. Now, I really appreciate his analysis and his heart because he wants to save loving relationships and he seems like a really nice guy, honestly. Uh, He's likable. 
But there's just there's one key thing, one key mistake, one, one place where he's really mistaken, and that is this world is not all that there is. This is not a closed system. Your only two options are not disappointment or despair. There is a God who created matter. And the God who created matter, who matters more than all matter, says to you and to me that we matter supremely, and he's demonstrated that. And that's the real game changer here. Next week, we're going to come back to John, 1 John chapter 3. But right now, I want to end on an up note, since we've been hanging out with Jan for a while. Here's what John says. This is, he blows all the worldliness apart. Here's what he says. How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we would be called the children of God. And it's like he can't hardly even accept it because it's just so crazy. But that we would be called the children of God. And that's what we are. And you can see the goosebumps popping out of the goosebumps on his arms. Because what this means is you don't have to suck ultimate meaning out of people. God, who is the one who matters above all, hasn't just given you a trickle. He's lavished his love on you. You have all that you need in terms of meaning and significance because the most significant one says you're significant enough to me that I would send my son to die on a cross to be in a relationship with you, not just for a moment, but for all eternity. When that sinks in, you don't need to suck it out of other people and certainly you don't despair anymore and you can relate to other people for who they are, not as God, but as people who are beloved by God. People who you don't need to take from, but people who are worthy of giving to. It's the game changer. Now, we're going to talk more about this next week, but I just have to end on this because this is so cool to me. Um, you know where it says uh, the love of God, how great is the love of God, or the King James, what manner of love is this? Those are kind of weak translations because in the original Greek, it's an idiom. And, and, and an idiom is kind of a metaphor that's insider language to a culture. And here, here's what I mean. I could, I could say, that guy has so many skeletons in his closet, and you'd know what I mean. I mean, he's got a past he's trying to hide. Okay. If you translated that word for word into Russian, they wouldn't get it. They'd go like, well, is he a medical student? Um, you know, is he a murderer? Is he a doctor? Why is he storing stuff in a closet? That's weird. Here, it's an idiom. And word for word, what it means in the Greek literally is from what country? Behold, from what country does the Father's love come? Now, I think if we were using modern idiom, it would be something like this. The love of the Father is out of this world, and that is exactly what we have to have. If this world were all there were, you got the options of disappointment and disillusionment, or you got the option of despair. And John's saying, those are not the only two options. There's a third, and this is the reality of it. You have a father who loves you with a love that you can't even begin to describe, and you don't even have to keep earning it and earning it as if eventually when you finally get your degree or you finally graduate from here or you finally have achieved this or have proven that, then we're going to give you a little bit more. He just dumped it all on you. He lavished his love on you. And until you get that, until you appropriate, appropriate that, your stance isn't right. In all of your relationships, you're going to be mm, doing this. And you're hoping to succeed with, with, with this stance. You're never going to throw strikes. On occasion, 
On occasion, you might make it into the strike zone. But on the whole, you're throwing like this or throwing like this. You've got to get the stance right. And the foundation to every good relationship relating to people for who they are, not for who they're not, is having the relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Does this make sense? I hope it does. Jesus teaches it. John teaches it. Paul teaches it. The Bible consistently teaches all of this in language of idolatry or not bowing down to idols. But this is the truth. And until you receive it, you just trying to throw strikes off balance. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, you're so good to us. We say thank you for loving us the way that you do. Thank you for not leaving us in this world alone. We do sense as human beings this, this hole in our souls that needs to be filled. We do want significance and not just a little. We we want to matter, which is why somehow grabbing hold of the despair option just doesn't seem to work. And even those who think this world is meaningless still try to extract from relationships ultimate significance and meaning. And I suppose the reason why is we were made for relationship. We were made to know significance and meaning. It's just that what we need is to have that meaning and significance and love ultimately come from you. And you have said quite clearly in the cross of Jesus Christ that each and every one of us in this room are desirable to you. And we don't have to be confused about how to make ourselves desirable or to maintain desirability because we are saved not by our works so that no one would boast. We're saved completely by your grace. You love because you love because you love. And you weren't waiting for us to get up to a certain standard, you just lavished your love on us. And like John, we stand back and we go, wow, this is out of this world that we would be called your children. And not just called your children, that we would be your children. Deeply loved, thoroughly accepted, and in relationship with you for all eternity. Lord, may that reality change us. And if we have not yet received that truth, I pray that you would grant everyone here the wisdom to receive that, that we would relate to one another, not for who we are not, but for who we are. Not just that our relationships would be lasting, but that we as your people would actually be authentic contributors to other people around us whom you have loved with an infinite love. Lord, teach us more of your love. Drive your love home to our hearts. And may we rejoice in it always. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.